welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at the Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair the Manassite took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havoth Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, and Chinnereth, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us into this space here this morning, and we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit now to illumine this, the word of God, to us, that we would understand and be formed by it. We pray that we would be formed by your word, Jesus Christ, given for us, crucified and resurrected, who paid the penalty for our sin, and greets us in grace by what he has done and from your great love, Father. Whether we come to you here this morning in the simulcast from a place near or far from you, would we know your welcome and your call upon our lives. Thank you that Jesus is good news to us and to our world. We pray in his name now. Amen. So here we are, September 2020, and there is a whiff of fall in the air. And there are different ways in which, as we turn the calendar from summer to fall, signals are signs, some of them old and familiar year after year, or newer ones that tell us, yes, in fact, fall is coming and fall is here. Here are some old standbys. Whiff of fall in the air, how do we know? The air, for one thing. We don't have to overthink this. We have that crisp chill in the air, it feels great. And finally, after a summer of all of these different non-pumpkin experiences that you've had, now you can lean into your pumpkin. So get that pumpkin latte and that pumpkin ale and that pumpkin cheesesteak and whatever else it is, because now is the time. Or again, something like decorations or Halloween. I was with my daughter Clara going to Occasionette, a great store here in Collingswood on Haddon Avenue. There is now a Halloween nook of tchotchkes 
at Occasionette, and it's only going to grow. Autumnal Halloween fall is here. So those are some old familiar signals. And there are some newer ones as well. And this one I get from a podcast that I listened to recently that observed we're not quite here yet, but there will come soon through media and social media, a series as we get to Thanksgiving and Christmas, get closer to those holidays of articles, think pieces, blogs, and podcasts that will talk about ways in which you can deal with your crazy family over the holidays when they start disagreeing about a lot of things, including politics. Here's how you can cope. Here's how you can handle it a little bit better. And this is new. Is it new because all of a sudden when you get together with extended families, there's all of these different opinions in the room just over the past couple of years? Probably not. Here is a difference as to why all of these resources are being given to us now in the late teens, now into 2020. Families have disagreed and families have argued forever. But the difference is that now, as our culture becomes more agitated, more angsty, more angry, more shrill, more polarized, we can handle it less and less and less and less. Isn't it the case that we are so riled up, and for much of it we say justifiably so, that it's hard for us even to share space, to be in a room with people with whom we disagree about different things, especially politics. It's hard for us to be there. We register it physiologically. Maybe our pulse rises a little bit. Maybe we start to sweat. Maybe we get a little bit red. Maybe we feel a little bit ill and we tell ourselves, I can't take this anymore. And statistically, that's borne out too. I've mentioned before that there were some studies done in the 1970s where parents were asked, hey, would you be okay if your son or daughter would marry across the political aisle? And back then, Republican parents said, yeah, it's fine if my kid marries a Democrat. And Democrat parents would say, yeah, no problem if my kid would go the other way and marry a Republican. Fast forward to now, there are studies where parents say, absolutely not. Anything but that. We would rather you become a polygamist in Utah than marry across the aisle. Please don't do that because we are so polarized. And so what we do is we self-select our community. We self-select. And it's so much easier for us to be, to be with people with whom we are aligned. And unintentionally or intentionally, we self-select in those ways, even if we're people that say it's probably healthy for us, or maybe it's definitely healthier for us, to be in relationships with people that are not exactly like us, where we don't have all of the same alignments. Let's build relationships like that. We say in theory, yeah, maybe we should push ourselves in that direction, but we don't. But here's a question. What if the issues aren't the only issues? What if there's more to it than that? What if another layer to this whole thing is that our circles of trust over the years, for various reasons, have gotten smaller and smaller, such that we struggle to love and to trust other people enough to have conversations of disagreement with them. It's just too hard. And we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the energy to do that anymore. 
And maybe we've had some experiences of relationships and friendships and community that over time fractures because the alignment just wasn't there. It hurts. And what can we say about church as well? Too often with churches, we also have experienced fracturings based on alignment issues of various kinds. Churches can be self-selecting places with some of these things. Churches over the years have been segregated even. So these are live issues for us. And sometimes I don't have a lot of hope for humanity. And I especially don't have a lot of hope if we're sitting around waiting and saying, well, the goal for all of this, we'll all get along again once and if we're able to agree about everything. If that ship was ever in dock, and I'm not sure that it was, that ship has sailed. And yet, I have more hope if, on the other hand, the goal is to be together even in the midst of differences. And if that's the case, perhaps we can move from communities of affinity and alignment and push through to communities where there are genuine differences along the way. And I understand, I get it. We want to be with other people that get us. That's just normal. But if we take steps of faith to Jesus, and if we get Jesus by his grace and by his mercy and by his power, Jesus can make community work. So let's talk about these things in a couple of parts from here. If last week I'm beginning to talk about some community stuff, actually, for the last couple. Let's approach it from this angle. We're going to talk about being divided in various ways as human beings, how we got to this point, how we got here, and then where we go from here at the same time. So welcome to the fall once again. We are in a ministry emphasis for the year about community and practicing community together. And that's also the sermon series, Community, basing these sermons week by week on different successive chapters of a book called Better Together, Discovering the Power of Community by a person named Rusty George. And in the earlier part of the book, Where We Are, George goes through different barriers to community. And the title of this chapter is No One Gets Me. It's hard to be in community because we want people to get us and we want to be in community with people that we get, but that doesn't happen a lot. And so community is fractured in these various ways. And George in the book talks about how with churches, we can be often too consumeristic and church shop, if you're familiar with the phrase, and think that I will be in a church only insofar as I feel deep preferential alignment along lots of different axes, whether it's theologically, whether it's stylistically, whether it's programmatically. And if those things aren't there, I'm gone. And that's true at a broader level of human community, where we want community, we want relationship, we want to be with other people, but we only feel comfortable in those relationships, and a lot of the time only practice those relationships if there is a high degree already of alignment and agreement and likewise, if that's not there, we are gone. So why on earth are we in Deuteronomy chapter 3 this morning? Well, I chose this passage because it gives us, and I understand this is not a super well-known passage of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, but this is a passage in which we receive a window, get a glimpse, get sight of a community that is practicing togetherness and community at cost. Deuteronomy, if I could talk about it here for just a second, is a historic book. It's the fifth one in the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy overall is one big long speech by Moses 
one of the leaders of God's ancient people, the Israelites, giving this sermon to the Israelites when they're on the cusp of the promised land. Lots of things have happened so far. The exodus has occurred, and God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert for Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers for 40 years. And tribes have already begun to be settled on the edge of the Promised Land. And in the early part of Deuteronomy, Moses is going back through some of this recent history, talking about the initial resettlement of the first three tribes on the first sliver of the Promised Land east of the Jordan River. We pick up again in verse 12. Where Moses says, When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. And from there, you might have thought, wow, there are a lot of words and proper names of tribes and families and places that I just don't know. This is Moses going family by family through these tribes, area by area, saying, you can take this, you can take this, you can take this. And I wouldn't blame you if you thought, okay, this reading sounds a little bit, we're a little bit in Bueller, 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 something, D-O-O, economics territory, not terribly interesting. But ho-ho, here we are in 2020 thinking it's not very interesting. Put yourself in the position of the original hearers, where Moses, after you've been traveling in the desert, wandering for 40 years, saying, we've resettled some tribes by this point. And when these tribes are named, and when these places are named, people are high-fiving and cheering all over the place. It's a celebration. Moses is taking on the mantle of Jason Kelsey at the top of the museum steps, Art Museum in Philly, at the end of the Super Bowl, when he's given his valedictory speech saying, this is awesome, and the crowd is going wild. So Moses here saying, Egypt doesn't like us, Egypt doesn't like us, we don't care, we're the Israelites, and this is great. So imagine the cheers in these last couple of verses, for example. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory from Gilead, people are cheering, as far as the valley of Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, and as far over as the river Jabbok. Oh yeah, the Jabbok River is awesome. The border of the Ammonites, the Arabah also, with the Jordan, that place is great as a border from Chinnereth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah. Pisgah is great on the east. And so Moses is saying to these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, here is your land, but it's not over. And the story goes that even though these three tribes have been settled, all of the rest of the 12, they still need to cross the Jordan River to settle their part, the main part of the promised land located between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And Moses tells these three initial tribes, your fighting men, your men of valor have got to go with them. You're settled, but you're not completely settled yet. Verse 18, and I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, your livestock, they can stay behind. That's okay. They shall remain until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, verse 20, as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given to you. You've got to fight for the other people. You may be settled, but other brothers and sisters of yours are not. You've got to keep going for them. You have got to pay for community at cost to yourself, 
some of you are going to die trying to occupy this land from these initial tribes that are, that are settled. But that's what it means and takes to be together. Community at cost. And here in 2020, is that a price too high and that we're not willing to pay it? How do we get to this point? A few streams. We can talk about culturally how we got to this antagonistic point. We can talk about the church. We could talk about personally. Culturally speaking, there have been some streams in American culture throughout the centuries that have brought pressure onto this present moment. One of the streams in the history of the United States is that we have always been at a, a nation of extremely individualistic people. Let's think about some of our touchstones. What's the great old American novel, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, which features one person, Captain Ahab, an individual who against all odds and all others pursues his obsession of hunting the great white whale. Or in the 19th century, it could be argued that the quintessential American essay, nonfiction, was written by Ralph Waldo Emerson. The title is Self-Reliance. You don't need anybody else. Just be an individual. Just be yourself. And in that book, Emerson says, my life is for itself and is not a spectacle. Or the quintessential American poem by our poet laureate, Walt Whitman, Song of Myself. I celebrate myself and sing myself, the poem begins. Or I've been reading a volume of collected nonfiction work by Mark Twain, and he started his writing career primarily in the old American West. It is just a madhouse of all of these individualistic people. And if you think about it, being individual, 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 be yourself, be yourself, be yourself, be yourself, now be together. That's really hard. And these trends have only accelerated into the present. And today I've talked about at other times in sermons how the cardinal or chief virtue of the day is expressive individualism where you don't let anything or anybody or any system or any thought construct get in the way of your defining yourself. Be your own person. Be individual. Which, as far as it goes, I understand the internal logic to it, but it makes it harder for us to be all together. And you might be somebody who says, I need to push every possible boundary so that I can self-express. I'm going to be as edgy as I possibly can on the vanguard. At the same time, you're actually being deeply traditional American because that's always been the progression this whole time anyway. But how can we stay together? And I'm not sure that secularism has all of the answers for human community working well together. A couple of years ago in the Atlantic magazine, an author named Peter Bernard said that secularism, and he's a secular person himself, has given us some benefits, but it hasn't delivered on everything that it's promised. He puts it this way, Bernard. He says, on this page, secularism is indeed correlated with greater tolerance, but it's also making America's partisan clashes more brutal. More brutal. Secularization isn't easing political conflict. It's making American politics even more convulsive and zero-sum. And so here we are, a convulsive zero-sum culture. That's where we are. And then church at the same time. Isn't it true that over time, churches, we can self-select? And isn't it true that over decades, over centuries, the church in this country has segregated? One of the formative texts for me in this direction, I read it a few years ago, a book by two Christian sociologists called Divided by Race, a History of Race in the Church 
friends, it is sad but important reading to see how we have been too often communities of racial alignment to the exclusion of others. And whether it's race or other stuff, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might say, hey, that's not me. I don't self-select my community. But here's a diagnostic question. Do you sometimes find yourself thinking in your heart of hearts about other Christians out there? How on earth could they be Christians and at the same time believe X, any social or political issue? And you're just really angry at them and judgy towards them and you feel superior to them. If you feel that, and I sometimes feel that too about others, maybe that's bleeding out a little bit and we need to look in the mirror a little bit more. And maybe we need to practice and cultivate the grace of having constructive conversations with other people with whom we disagree. And then for us personally, we enjoy communities of affinity. But what if, like I said earlier, what if the main problem isn't the fact that we disagree about the issues? What if the real and deeper problem is that there's something off inside of me such that I can't handle it? That's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Why is it the case that I struggle so hard to be in a room with somebody that has a different opinion than I do? Why is it the case that I can be sitting on my couch and read something on social media by a high school friend of mine that I haven't seen in decades sitting on his or her couch thousands of miles away and I get so incredibly angry. What is going on there? How can we de-escalate? How can we relax a little bit? Well, we need to ask Jesus for help. And if you're a secular person, somebody who's skeptical about spiritual realities, uh, you might think, well, maybe the church doesn't really have anything to offer. Maybe the church actually, in fact, is making it worse. But I have a dream, and others have as well, that the church can be a type of third space where there are a lot of people really different from one another that are yet united in the bonds of Jesus to form a new kind of community such that we can be united together. Grace can actually do that, and we can take steps in that direction. The most diverse church that I ever pastored was a church in West Philadelphia, my first one. And multiple people said when they came into contact with our fellowship, we were a ragtag bunch in so many different ways. Not without our own problems for sure, but one of the things that was said about our church, wow, you people are really different from one another. But it seems like you're making it work as a community. Maybe God is here. So this is where we've come to this point, and now let's talk about where we might go from here. Let's talk about Jesus. So you might be thinking, well, community outside of alignment is difficult for me because my beliefs are actually really important. And they are. I understand that. I get that. That is why community is hard. And typically how I see people trying to navigate differences is that will either on one hand maximize and turn up to 11 all of our opinions and issues or will minimize them. Both are power plays, and neither of them really tend to work in the long term. If you're somebody that says, I'm just going to pump up all of my own opinions and maximize the importance of my own ideas and my own beliefs, my own identity against everybody else, you're only setting yourself up to shrink your island and shrink your island and shrink your island and shrink your island. Because not very many people are going to end up aligning with you. You're going to be stuck with yourself and you're going to view everybody else as a threat. But then don't go so far in the other direction 
and think, well, my identity doesn't matter. My ideas don't matter. My, my positions don't matter. They do. Don't turn yourself into a doormat and just flatten yourself. That's not going to work either. But in my opinion, the better way is neither maximizing nor minimizing, but relativizing, which is what we can find in the Christian story for us. For me to recognize on one hand, yes, my identity, who I am, where I'm from, my ideas, they're important, but they are not as important as we hear God in the scriptures as how I relate to you. You are more important than my stuff. That's tough. That's hard, but that's God's way. Practicing community at cost. Remembering again Deuteronomy chapter 3. It could have been for Reuben and Gad and Manasseh when through Moses God said, Okay, don't get too comfortable, guys. Keep going. Fight for all of these other tribes now because they haven't settled yet. I wouldn't have blamed them if they would have thought at least to themselves, I don't like this. I'm already settled. Why can't I stay here? God would have come back and said, you are not just for yourselves. You're united to these other folks. Practice community at cost. And in that case, even at the cost of their lives. And let's be real for a second. When you're in a room with people that disagree with you, when you're in a relationship with people that are not like you, most of the time they're probably not trying to kill you, which was the danger for continuing to try to occupy the promised land. If they are trying to kill you, Call the police, but chances are that's not happening. Are we able to take on some of the cost ourselves, which actually is the mature way to work through differences with other people? Let me assume upon myself some of this cost. It's going to hurt me somewhat, but it's worth it for the sake of moving past my affinities to relationships of difference with other people. This is, in fact, the way of Jesus and the way that the church is called to. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, after Jesus is resurrected, he writes to the Philippian church. We saw these verses last year. Paul says, okay, in the midst of conflict, neither fight nor flight. Don't tap out. Don't dig in. Don't put your boxing gloves on. Instead, this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul, how can we do this? Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But you've got to understand, I can think to myself, or we can think, all these other people are wrong. You want me to be in relationship with them? Jesus, they're wrong. But Jesus comes back to us in the context of the Christian story and says, yeah, they may be wrong. Who knows? But so are you. There's that whole cross thing, that whole crucifixion ordeal. I died for people that I thought were wrong. They were sinners. We all are. While we were enemies, Paul writes in a different place, Jesus died for us. And let me pay the penalty for your sin so that you can be freed to practice community with one another in the midst of ideological disagreements, even in the midst of sins. You can be together because I have paid the cost. And so we practice community across various barriers because Jesus is the one that gives us a bond that works, a foundation that stays and is certain and is formed for us that we can build upon community that Jesus has bought for us, a greater unity across barriers.
And if in the midst of practicing community you find pain and you find cost of being with people that are different from who you are, bring that cost to Jesus. Bring that cost to Jesus. This is an opportunity for you to exercise some of the richness of what the Bible calls your union with Jesus. Jesus, being in community that are different from I am, it's hard. I want to be with people that get me, and I get them instinctively, easily, and with already deep alignment. This is tougher. But as we understand our closeness to Jesus, we understand that Jesus did something tough and hard and difficult for us in the cross. We can gain strength and sustenance from him to push out into deeper community with other people. And if you're a skeptic, again, thanks for tuning in. Take steps towards this Jesus so that you can find both humility and truthfulness in your relationships with other people that, in my opinion, only come from grace in Jesus. We can be either people of truth or people of humility, but if we're people of truth without humility, we're aggressors and we can become angry and judgmental. But if we're only people of humility without being people of truth at the same time, then we can be doormats, then we can be flattened again. That's back to the maximizing and minimizing. It's only the grace of Jesus that in a healthy way relativizes us. Pushing through relationships and community of affinity and alignment to community of difference. A helpful book that I read in this past year is by a person named Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. It's a good book, goes chapter by chapter through different contemporary current objections to Christianity. And at one point she writes this, <clears throat> if our commitment to diversity is more than skin deep, we must cultivate deep friendships with smart people with whom we fundamentally disagree. What are those steps for you? Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a community member, maybe it's somebody at church, maybe it's somebody near to you, maybe it's somebody far from you, but you're connected with them through social media or otherwise. What steps can you take with people that are different from you? And as we take these steps and that deep breath comes into us, what we find on the other side is Jesus in the power and presence of his Holy Spirit to build us up, to sustain us, to say and recognize this is hard, but this is good. And this is a witness to the world around us that within the church of Jesus Christ, all of these crazy weird people that are different, yet united in Jesus, that gives me hope for our world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.